0: Good morning, church family. We are in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Of course, we will be praying for those teenagers. Uh, We just love the teens of this church. Uh, We just value you guys. And, uh, you know, as I think about our church and pray for our church, I want this church to be the church where our kids want to be and where our grandkids want to be. And even as a teenager, where your friends feel engaged, not just like with fun and that kind of stuff, but truly engaged, people who know them, love them, care about them. That's often on my heart for our young people. Also on my heart right now um, is this theme of renovation. You know, the heart for me of renovation is new potential. The question you would ask of new potential is, what could be? I think that's a great question to ask. I love living in this space. I like thinking about possibilities, new horizons, all of that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you, Katie was nodding her head in the first service because I kill her on a daily basis talking about the future. She sometimes is like, can we just talk about, like, right now? I don't want to think about the future. But that's the space where I love to live because when I look at the future, Obviously, I see things like progress and growth. Now, that's why I think it's fun that we're in a fun conversation in our strategic exploration process with Aspen. We've had uh, a team of eight members from the church who have been working really hard with the Aspen team. We've been asking some really hard questions about our space. We've had focus groups from the church. We've had focus group from the community come in and, and advise us on some things they're seeing with regard to the campus. And we need to keep asking hard questions when it comes to this project. I was on a phone call with Craig Campbell recently, and he said, you know, Rob, we know about 40% of the information we need to know for uh, to have like good answers to tell people about this project and i was like you know craig that was like a really wise way to put it we're in the space of conceiving dreaming looking for the potential but i do think that the lord has helped us to be able to find an essence for this project and the way that i would frame it is this uh, we want to create a space where we can cultivate deep relationships Okay, this image on the screen helps me to think of our relationships in three spheres. This is not original to me, uh, but when you look at this image, you see the three relationships that should be important in the life of the disciple. You think of the up, the in, and the out when it comes to relationships. Up, of course, is our relationship with God. In is our relationship with the family of God. Out is our relationship with the hurting world that is around us. And of course, when you think about the essence of this project, we need to keep all three of those relationships in focus. It could be very easy to get pragmatic and just think about in, our relationships with one another, what's gonna happen inside of this building that I'm gonna be really excited about, and lose touch without, which is this idea of creating thresholds where people in our own physical local community see the church as being a place that is accessible to them, warm towards them, inviting to them, a church that says we are for the community. So we're really asking hard questions to keep these three relationships in balance. Now, new potential is potential that's always lying beneath the serpent surface. I like to think of it like this. It's outside of our awareness. We need to actually do hard work to see what the potential is. Let me show you a picture of our current building right now. This is the Fellowship Hall. It's a beautiful space. In 1996, a team from OBC saw potential, and they created this building. And we've lived into that potential for many years. But I want you to see possibilities for new potential. What if we had a space like this? Now, disclaimer, this is called a concept. So as you look at this picture, this is a concept that is born out of these really deep conversations that we've been having around the space. And as I think about a space like this, the potential that I see is this, I see people lingering, sitting around together, having coffee. I see belly laughter. I see relationships moving from just kind of like peripheral relationships where I casually know you and we're acquaintances to relationships where we get to know one another, where we say, why don't you come to my house and let's get to know one another more. You see, this is the potential for in. There's also potential for out that we're talking about right now. We wanna keep asking these hard questions of the building, and if you know, you're thinking about this potential and you're feeling excited about it, come to the annual meeting. Craig will have an update of where we're at in the process and what we can think about moving forward with this process. Now, just like there's potential in this space, I want you to understand spiritually that God always looks at you and sees the potential in you as an individual person. And he also looks at us as a church and he sees potential in us as a body of Christ. And then he also sees the potential outside of just ourselves, but the broader kingdom of God. There's so much potential, spiritually speaking, that exists out there. In our mission statement, we use three words to describe what we believe God is calling us to do. Worship, transformation, mission. And when I think about transformation, I think about potential. That's why we're theming our series, Isaiah, right now as Renovate. It has this idea of transformation in mind. You remember last week as we opened up with Isaiah 6, we, we saw God beginning the renovate process with demolition. He had to break some things down in Isaiah's worldview so that Isaiah could be the prophet who could go forward and do this hard work of ministry that he would have in this time. As we pick up the story this morning, we're now five years down the road from Isaiah chapter 6. We're in Isaiah chapter 7, and God is sending the prophet in to deal with a very, wicked king, King Ahaz, and he has a very important message for this king, a message that is timeless and valuable for the people of God today. We're looking at a lot of texts this morning, chapter 7, verse 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 8. We're not going to cover every verse in detail, but I want to give you a high-level look at how this passage flows. It begins with a decision. Will Ahaz choose to trust God. And let me just say this that decision is ever before any one of us. And then it moves into a second part judgment. Ahaz chooses to reject God. So God judges Ahaz and Judah for their lack of faith. Now, this is not a hellfire and brimstone message. This message from God to the people of Judah or any one of us is a relational appeal. See, God wishes to save his people. If we trust God, he saves. If we deny God, if we lack faith, well, then he disciplines. But know God's heart is always for salvation and not for discipline. Think of yourself as a parent if you have children. What is your heart for your kids? You want to bless them. You want the best for them. But at the same time, You also know as a parent that if you withhold discipline from a child through their childhood, you get a spoiled brat, and you don't want to create that dynamic. It's not good for them. It's not good for the world. Well, God knows that infinitely more than we do. So we pick up the story. Let's look at the first two verses. Chapter 7 of Isaiah. It says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, And the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, just to get into the background a little bit, where are we at in the line of the kings? Well, Ahaz is the grandson of Uzziah. You remember last week, Uzziah enters the house of the Lord proudly, and he develops leprosy as a judgment. And from that moment forward, his son Jotham stepped in as co-regent of Judah. He's leading the country for 10 years, then Uzziah dies, and then another six years as king. Scriptures tell us that Jotham was a righteous king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. His son Ahaz, on the other hand, is the apple who fell far from the tree. He is incredibly wicked. His wickedness is so numerous that I can't even tell you all the things he did. I can boil it down to some big things, like he burned his children in sacrifice to God's. And he led Israel into this culture of societal evil. And now he finds himself in a bind. In fact, he's in his war room with his counselors, and his finger is shaking, just hovering above the nuclear button. He's thinking about pressing it. We have these two kings who are forming an alliance, and they're doing this because a powerful nation has emerged as Syria. They are the big kid on the block, and they are bullying everyone around them. They have expansion in mind, and they are ruthless in their pursuit of it. So Syria and Israel, they form an alliance together, and this alliance is somewhere around 10 years old at this point. They want Israel to join the alliance. Ahaz is refused. So now we have a troop buildup on the border. Much like that Ukraine-Russian conflict. You remember that? They had that snake coil pattern just before they invaded. These two kings are waiting at the door, ready to strike. He's thinking about pushing that button. <laughs> Now, it truly is a nuclear option. Isaiah will later say in the prophecy that trying to engage Syria to come in and help you, assist you with these two kings is like grabbing a tiger by the tail. And he's thinking like, okay, well, they're going to come in and, 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 and they'll take care of Syria and Israel and then we'll be all set. But the problem with a nation like Assyria is there will be nuclear fallout if you push the button. Yes, they will blast those two nations, but they're not in the business of doing good deeds for others. Have you ever noticed this about human nature? We get in crisis mode, our backs up against the wall, and then we just start reacting. We start making snap decisions, we make decisions that otherwise we know wouldn't be good for us, wouldn't be ideal for us, but we think, well, I've got no other choice, I've got to make this particular decision. It's because we get binary in our thinking. Ahaz, he thinks he has two options. Either one, we get wiped out by Syria or Israel, or two, I grab the tiger by the tail and I hope the tiger doesn't bite me. So God sends in Isaiah, and he's like, listen, don't engage in this either-or-logical fallacy. I have a third option in mind for you. We pick up in verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub. Now, interesting note here, Sheer Jashub is Isaiah's son, and he is like a walking prophecy, his name means a remnant will remain. It's like a double-edged prophecy in the sense that there's hope, someone's gonna live, and of course there's danger, you're getting reduced down to a remnant. So it's not an ideal message in that sense. At the end of the conduit, at the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field, so Ahaz is king, is taking inventory. Are we gonna have enough water? Are we gonna have enough resources in case we're being invaded? And God says in verse four, say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of resin in Syria, in the son of Ramalia. So here you have this king that's already been mentioned by name, but now God's saying he's not even worth mentioning by name. He's inconsequential. Verse five, because Syria. With Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. Listen to this, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now why should God care? Why come alongside and assist a king who is literally, for his entire rule, been spitting in your faith, saying, I don't need you. I'm going to worship other gods. Well, this whole dynamic really isn't about Ahaz, it's about God's reputation. You see, at the center of Isaiah chapter 7, there's a prof- prophecy, 2 Samuel 7, where God promised something significant to David you might recall this prophecy. He said that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And listen to what Syria and Israel is trying to do. They want to remove the Dominic king from the throne and replace him with a puppet. Now, why does God make these wild commitments? why does he make promises in 2 Samuel 7 to David knowing that at some point he's going to actually have to help out a, a guy like King Ahaz? I don't fully understand the answer to that question. I mean, I could ask an even bigger question. Why does he save any of us? Well, the answer I've come to is he's God, and he chooses to do what pleases him. He even chooses to do things we wouldn't do for the sake of bringing about his good plans. The core of his appeal to Ahaz is verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And this is an appeal that is ever before any person. You see, God is essentially always saying, if you're going to follow me, you are gonna to have to trust me with your life. And I'm not interested in a in half-hearted faith. I'm not interested in a virtue signaling faith. I'm interested in the kind of faith that believes in me in the midst of crisis. Now, why is it crisis that matters? Well, crisis is the space where you really prove you believe what you believe. It's easy to say I believe in God when it is all puppy dogs and sunshine and rainbows. But what happens when the storm clouds are forming over your life? Do you really still cling to the Lord in that moment? Hebrews, the author there says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is the linchpin of the renovation process. You want to see God move in your life, Do you want to see God transform you from the inside out? Well, you have to learn to trust him. If we were to change the metaphor and put it in different categories, let's think of a building. Faith is the foundation upon which the entire edifice stands. You crack the foundation, the entire building collapses. Or if we change it into economic categories, faith is the currency that spends within the economy. Or if we think of it in terms of anatomical categories, it is the life giving oxygenated blood that flows through the body and feeds the body and sustains the body. In the life, the spiritual life, the renovated life, you can go nowhere without faith, which also means then that there is a serious roadblock to the renovation process, and that is a lack of faith. And a lack of faith can come in various forms. We see one form of it in Ahaz in this story. Pick up with me in verse 10. The text says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Now, can you imagine what God has just presented Ahaz with? Ask anything. Be extravagant. Ask for the moon. That's Eugene Pearson's paraphrase there. I think it really captures the essence of this. Can you imagine God saying, ask for anything so that I might validate my presence in your life? I'm trying to think about what I would ask for in that moment, and today I'm thinking about T-Rexes with laser beams on their head as an entire army. I don't know what I would ask for tomorrow, but I'm telling you that's a big request that God's making here. Now, we look at the story and read it, and we think, boy... You know, Rob's asking for T-Rexes. Ahaz sounds a little more spiritually minded than him. He's saying he doesn't want to put God to the test. After all, we know there's a story about Jesus where Satan has him up on the pinnacle of the temple and he says, throw yourself down so that the angels might capture you. And, And that's going to prove to everyone in Jerusalem that you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, listen, church. Ahaz is no Jesus. This is a pious, virtue-signaling response. I want to look good in the presence of everyone standing around me while simultaneously I'm pushing the nuclear button. This is a total lack of faith in his response. Again, I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 13. It draws out how Isaiah calls him on the carpet. So Isaiah told him, then, listen to this government of David. It's bad enough that you make people tired with your pious, timid hypocrisies. But now you are making God tired. Isaiah's like, I've got no time for this phony, fake faith that you're putting forward, a high. has. In fact, as you look at scriptures and you look at God, God never has time for false humility and false faith. Jesus certainly didn't. Look at his interactions with the Pharisees. I have uh, Matthew 23 on this screen here, and he says this in verse 29, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And Jesus says that's a bunch of hogwash in the next verses. He says, you are the sons of your father. In fact, I will be in short order sending prophets into the world and you're gonna do the same thing to them god has no time for phony faith now don't hear me wrongly sometimes we hear that and we think well then there must be something wrong with me if i struggle with doubt or uncertainty that's different it it turns out that people who are really wrestling with faith but in the direction toward god that God really likes to work with that. I think of Mark chapter 9 where that father is crying out to Jesus. The disciples have tried to heal his son. They're getting nowhere with him. And then he comes to Jesus and he says, will you do something about this? And Jesus says, I will, but you need to have faith in me. And you remember the father's response? He says, Lord, I have faith, but I gotta be honest with you. It is mixed up with all kinds of uncertainty and doubt right now. Help my unbelief. And Jesus says to that man, I can work with that. And he heals the boy. God's not interested in phony faith, though. See, Ahaz has rejected God in this passage, and you see that there's a change of relationship in the language. If you look at verse 11, Isaiah refers to God as your God when he speaks to Ahaz. This is your God, Ahaz. Trust him. Ahaz rejects God. You go to verse 13 and the language changes. Now Isaiah is calling him my God. Essentially, my God isn't on your side anymore, Ahaz. Your opportunity has passed. And with this transition, we move into verse 14. Here's another sign that's given. Only this time, the sign is not a sign that is offered to Ahaz. It is now a sign that is being imposed upon Ahaz. So let's pick up. We're going to look at verses 14 through 17 together. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. If you look at verse 14, you will recognize that this is a very common prophecy from the Bible, a very familiar prophecy from the Bible. In fact, if you're around church at all at Christmas season, we read this prophecy a lot. We read it every single year on the front steps of the church at the village stroll while we're having the creche service. And if you go into Matthew, He has a prophecy where he he, he cites this as a prophecy that he looks back to to say that Jesus is confirming it when Jesus was born of a virgin. It's also a prophecy that is hotly debated. I mean, one of the most debated prophecies in all the scriptures. As people look at it, they're asking the question, what does this prophecy have to do with Jesus and with the virgin birth? Now, there are three common um, interpretations of this passage. The first interpretation of Isaiah 7.14 is that Isaiah 7.14 only has the immediate circumstances of his time in mind. So those who interpret it this way say this doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. In fact, the word that is translated virgin in the English text should actually be translated young woman. It doesn't even have the concept of virginity in mind. And Matthew, in Matthew one twenty-three, he actually just cherry-picked this verse so that he could make his argument. And I just want to stop us right there and say, I think we can all see that the person who holds that view does not have a high view of scripture. They have a mindset going into the Bible where they say the Bible has no predictive prophecy. And therefore, Isaiah 7.14 couldn't mean anything about the future. A second way to interpret it is a near fulfillment and far fulfillment, meaning that the, the, the prophecy has an application for Ahaz's day, but also it projects forward to a fulfillment in the day of Jesus. And those who hold this view they would say either that Emmanuel, the child talked about in verse 14, is Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah, or he was an unknown boy who was born of an unknown virgin living in this time period, or that he is Isaiah's son in Isaiah chapter eight, Meher, Shahal Hash, Baz, and that name Remember, it's always prophecy and word with Isaiah. He names his kids names like this. Rush to plunder, speed to spoil. How would you like it if your parents gave you that name? (laughs) Here's a third one. Others believe that Isaiah 7.14 has no immediate fulfillment in Ahaz's day and that it only was fulfilled when Jesus was born. Now, personally, I think a compelling case can be made for no immediate fulfillment. As we think through the flow of the story, Ahaz has proven that he is not the Davidic king to move God's promise forward that he gave in 2 Samuel 7. He's anything but that. So I actually look at the sign that's given in Isaiah seven fourteen as a detour sign. Okay, Ahaz has set up this great roadblock, and now God's like, okay, I've got to work around this. And we know with detours that they can be incredibly inconvenient. They still get you to the destination where you want to go, but you have to take some, you know, backwaters ways to get there. Think about Finney's Lane right now, for example. I mean, for crying out loud, every time I leave my house... I've got this Finney's Lane map in my brain, and I think I'm getting there right on time, and I am always five to ten minutes late. I have come to really appreciate Finney's Lane over the last couple of months. It is so direct. If you want to get to Ionall Road, you just hop on that bad boy, and you are there quickly. Now, think of it like this. The physical rule of a Davidic king from the throne of Jerusalem would be like the Finney's Lane for God's messianic promise. It is the most direct route to fulfill God's promise, but when the king on the throne rejects God's leadership, God cannot work with that. So if I was to paraphrase verses 14 through 17, I would say it like this, you have rejected me, now I will work around you. I will bring the Messiah, Emmanuel, despite your lack of faith, only he's not coming via the physical rule of a king on the throne of Jerusalem. Instead, you're going to get what you asked for, the king of Assyria. So the remainder of the chapter, chapter 7 and beginning with chapter 8, is then a long prophecy of judgment. So this means that the The main road is all tore up right now. The Davidic king ruling from a throne in Jerusalem. It's like Finney's Lane. And you see that as the story of scripture moves forward from here. First, you have the occupying force of Assyria come in and they greatly disrupt Judah. Now, they don't remove the Davidic king. Babylon comes in and does that. And they bring the people into exile. And then from there, the the foreign occupation just continues to switch hands. You have Persia, and then Greece, and then in Jesus' own day, you have Rome, who is occupying Judah and Jerusalem. In fact, is there a Davidic king on the throne of Jerusalem today? No. Finney's Lane is still under construction, under repair. We are looking forward to a day, though, where the scriptures say that he will physically rule from Jerusalem. And I tell you, when the Bible talks about that, that will be a good day. Isaiah 7.15 is also worth making mention of as we think about this prophecy in terms of Jesus. Look at what it says there. It says that the boy will eat curds and honey. Now, according to Isaiah seventy twenty two, if you will allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, that's not a good dynamic. I know in our kind of like vegan world, in our healthy living world, we like the thought of like yogurt and cottage cheese and all that kind of stuff. But according to this time period, or in this time period, that's a subsistence diet. That's the kind of diet that you go on when you don't have, like, crops available to you because the land's been devastated. So now you've got to get really creative with different ways of using milk. Davis, a commentator, notes, curds and honey are not the food of paradise. People who eat yogurt and cottage cheese are not having the time of their lives. And uh, yes, hearty amen. Um, I I realized that on my last diet. Now, as we know, Jesus was born into poverty. How do we know that? If you look at Luke's gospel, when Mary and Joseph are going to present the sacrifice of dedication of Jesus, what do they present in sacrifice? Two turtle doves or pigeons. If you look at leviticus chapter 12 that was permissible only for those who could not afford to purchase a lamb i mean think about god's detours it's incredible wouldn't it be better for jesus to be a davidic king ruling from the throne of jerusalem instead of being a king born in a manger Wouldn't it be more ideal for him to operate as Judah is a regional power with great influence in the region instead of a broken down power that has been ruled for centuries over foreign occupiers? But God's ways are not our ways. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, he chose what is weak in the world, to shame, the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are. I don't understand it, but I'll tell you what, when you look back on the things of God in retrospect and you see what they've done and resulted in, you think, whoa, this is so amazing, I can't believe it. Now, the big question before you as you think about spiritually applying this text, is this. Do you want to experience more of God's renovating work in your life? That's a big question. We're talking about new potential here. We're talking about new possibilities. You see, the potential that God has in mind for each one of us, I like to say it like this. You are becoming a special limited edition version of Jesus. That's what he has in mind for you. The real question is, well, how do I work with God in tandem as he's bringing that about in my life? And the simple answer that the scriptures is giving us in this text is that you must grow your faith. You must grow your faith when it counts. Well, when does it count, Rob? It counts all the time, but it especially counts in crisis. Well, Rob, how do I grow my faith? Well, I wish I had a clean, clear answer to give you on that question. But it turns out that God grows each one of our faiths in very personal ways. I can't grow your faith for you. A mature Christian can't grow your faith for you. God says in his word, he's not going to grow your faith for you. He'll grow it with you. Think about the experience of Abraham and just how different god grew his faith from maybe your story he calls him out of ur of the chaldeans into the promised land when he gets to the promised land almost immediately god presents him with a crisis famine abraham are you going to run to egypt or are you going to stay in the promised land like i've called you to abraham runs god has to work on him he gets him back into the promised land now he presents a new challenge Abraham, I'm going to create an heir that will become nations. It will come about through Sarah. Now hurry up and wait. And he waits for decades. And then Abraham's presented with a choice. Do I bring about the heir through my conventional wisdom? Or do I wait on God? He chooses conventional wisdom. He later circles back to waiting on God. Then comes the faith final exam, Genesis chapter 21. Abraham, I want you to offer up your beloved son, your only son to me. Bring him to Mount Moriah, sacrifice him. Abraham goes through the motions. God stops him. He passes the final exam with flying colors. You know, the best advice I can give you in this arena of growing faith is to pray the dangerous prayer that we're talking about this morning. Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith. It's a dangerous prayer because when you ask God to increase your faith, God intends to do it in his way. Be brave like the Father in Mark chapter 9. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And know that when you pray that dangerous prayer, God doesn't intend your harm. He intends your radical renovation so the final word on this chapter is this if you want to see your faith grow you've got to learn how to grow your prayer life significantly let's pray lord i thank you for your holy word we're told in the new testament that all scripture is god-breathed And of course, we know then that any passage of scripture relates to us in significant ways. We look at Isaiah chapter 7, and sometimes it just feels like it reads like news headlines from 2,000 years ago. But these are relevant stories, relevant issues for today, because here's the deal. Faith, growing faith, exercising faith is, is transferable to any day. We all need to do it. So on behalf of this church, whether they want me to or not, I am praying, Lord, increase our faith in 2023. Help us to see the things that only you can see. Help us, Lord, not to be practical, but purposeful. Help us, Lord, to step out in ways we never believed we could before. In your name we pray.